Reeling from all the terrible news, but not sure how to take action? I'm Kelly. I'm Lila. And this is What Can I Do? Each week, we interview activists about how they took action, what got them started, who helped them along the way, and what they do differently next time. In the process, we offer concrete advice on how to take the leap from freaking out on Twitter to making a difference. So let's get started. Hello, welcome everyone. I am Kelly Pollock. This is What Can I Do? The podcast where we help you figure out what you can do and, and how to take action. I am here with my co-host, Lila. Hello, Lila. Hey, Kelly, how are you? Uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that that's about my answer at the moment. That's about, yeah. I'm excited to be back. I feel like we've had a little bit of a hiatus and now we get an opportunity to, in the, the beginning of what is probably going to be an exciting election season, we get another opportunity to tell people what they can get up to, to help out in these trying times. Today, I'm very excited about our guest. I actually met them at an event that was organized by, uh, marked by COVID, whose founders you heard on our very first episode of What Can I Do? Fiona Lowenstein is an award-winning independent journalist, producer, speaker, uh, they cover health justice, wellness culture, LGBTQ plus issues, and more. Their works appeared in the New York Times, Teen Vogue, The Nation, Wired, Vox, The Guardian, Business Insider, all the greats. And they're also the founder of Body Politic, which is the home of the original long COVID support group. And most recently, the editor of a really excellent book that I have personally found incredibly helpful, The Long COVID Survival Guide. So welcome, Fiona. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, so we uh, have lots of questions for you, but I, I want to start by asking you a little bit just about your your background in advocacy and uh, both advocacy and sort of like the the doing of advocacy and also the writing about it. You know, what what's your sort of trajectory? Yeah, so um, let's rewind pre pandemic because I think that that was when a lot of things uh, shifted for me, of course. So I, I grew up in New York City. Um, I grew up with um, a kind of famous feminist health advocate as a very prominent figure in my life. Her name was Barbara Seaman. For those who haven't heard of her, um, she was a very active figure in the women's health movement. She is a big part of the reason that there is that insert inside of the birth control pill telling you all of the things that the birth control pill could do as a side effect. Um, she's also a big part of the reason that that pill is regulated really in any way. There's an amazing, if you Google her, you'll find like an amazing photo of her wagging her finger at Congress with um, a contraceptive sponge actually on her finger. Um, so yeah, she was a family friend growing up. Her like daughter had known my dad in high school and I was lucky enough to know her. She was kind of like a surrogate grandmother to me when I was young. And so she, I think, is someone who really strongly impacted my um, desire to, I guess, impact the world and connect people and get involved in what might be seen as activist issues. She used to bring me along to, you know, screenings of films about um, female genital mutilation and be like, let's go, it's going to be a great time. <laughs> and, um, you know, was just really bold and always connecting people. And I think um, was a big part of the reason that I kind of came to care about these issues in the world and also feel like I could affect change. 
And then uh, when I was in college, um, I went to Yale and I went to Yale uh, from 2012 to 2016. And I don't expect necessarily anyone on this podcast to remember the news coverage of Yale during that time. But if you were reading Jezebel and the Washington Post and really kind of any uh, mainstream media outlet, there's a good chance that you came across coverage of my college while I was there. Um, There were a number of kind of big scandals, social justice issues that happened while I was at Yale um, surrounding racial injustice and also sexual assault that really energized the campus um, and student activism and were portrayed by the media as, uh, you know, an instance of kind of, quote unquote, special snowflakes melting down because they weren't getting their way, right? Our way being like, I'll give you the example of uh, the captain of the Yale basketball team was expelled for sexual assault. And I will tell you, I think it takes quite a bit to be expelled for sexual assault if you are the captain of the basketball team, um, which enraged like many basketball fans. Right. And so there were kind of all of these attempts to get him back. um, Right. And so we were kind of, I guess, protesting that protest. Right. Um, So it was things things of that nature. There was a real reckoning my uh, senior fall having to do with racial injustice. Um, A lot of things kind of came to a head at once, um, but it involved a a school administrator sending an email out unprompted to the to uh, a a section of the campus kind of recommending that people wear culturally appropriative costumes saying like, you know what, I I just want to say I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. So again, big reaction from the students, right? But I think what um, the reason I bring this up is I was uh, I was running the I was the editor in chief of the feminist publication at the time and watching the mainstream media coverage and then being on campus and kind of seeing what was actually happening. I saw this huge disconnect and it was really, really upsetting. And I think it was the first time in my life that I saw how outside media could so vastly misrepresent something that was happening, you know, describing these students as kind of, you know, these special snowflakes melting down when a lot of these people were really putting like their academics and their future careers, and in some cases, their safety on the line by going out there and saying, this is how I feel. And a lot of these students also were not people who had been engaged in activism before, but had kind of reached a boiling point and saw that this was like an important movement and wanted to get involved. So um, that was, I think, uh, an important moment for me. It was a chance for me to kind of get involved in student activism as a journalist. I did a lot of work through that publication of trying to amplify student voices that I didn't feel like were getting out there in the mainstream media um, and just trying to cover what I felt like was really going on. Um, And of course, did end up speaking to the outside media a little bit as well. But I think that shaped my uh, approach to or what later became my approach to maybe long COVID advocacy, which was more of a communications approach and an approach to, again, trying to get the stories out there that weren't being told. This actually leads seamlessly into my next question, which is you describe your background as being in advocacy-based journalism. And I was wondering if you could define what that is, because I also feel like maybe people feel there's some inherent tension between those two roles. And I'm curious how you navigate that and also just sort of how you define that. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, in some ways, I think all journalism is advocacy-based journalism in the sense that journalism is supposed to be about speaking truth to power. I mean, listen, there's many different types of journalism, right? And so I think when I say advocacy-based journalism, what I'm talking about is the fact that I have, yeah, typically been more interested in 
trying to amplify the narratives and the voices that maybe aren't going to be amplified naturally because they're not coming from the people who already already hold those positions of power or have those huge megaphones. And so I think some people see that work as advocacy. Some people see that work as activism. I often don't because it just feels like communication and what kind of robust communication and honest journalism should be. But I often call it advocacy-based journalism because I think that there is that connection. I also refer to it that way because a lot of the work that I've done, whether it was in college when I was kind of covering these student movements or, you know, work I work that I did at that time and afterward around sexual uh, misconduct on college campuses and sexual assault or the work that I'm doing with long COVID. I've always been really interested in trying to use my platform as a journalist to also just connect with advocates and understand what advocates are thinking, because I think advocacy movements are interesting. But then beyond that, I also think that there is a shift happening in journalism for, you know, my generation, our generation, your generation. I feel like we, th- this podcast like spans kind of, kind of a large, like Gen Z millennial. The, the, the three people on here also span, I think, three generations. So. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we've got like, we'll say our generation and just know we're talking about. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That that basically, I do think there's a shift happening, right? Where the the idea used to be that if you had any sort of personal experience that was close to the subject you were reporting on, that might make you bad at reporting on the subject, or that might make you biased, right? I think that there is more of an understanding now that having lived experience or some sort of personal experience that might bring you closer to the subject can actually make you better at reporting on it, right? That everyone brings their own biases to every topic that we report on, whether that's, you know, a lack of personal experience with this specific issue, or um, whether it's how having had that experience yourself. And so I think when you look at publications like Teen Vogue, for example, like they're really not afraid of um, having journalists write about topics that they themselves have personally experienced. I did a, a feature for them a couple of years ago about the Miss America organization and LGBTQ plus involvement in the Miss America organization, because I participated in the Miss America organization and I'm I'm queer, right? And gender queer. And they weren't like, oh no, you can't possibly write about this because you won't understand it because you have been deep inside it and have seen it from all of those angles, right? But at the same time, I'm also not pretending that I haven't had those experiences. So it's not like I'm going in and kind of saying, I'm an objective observer who has nothing to do with this. I think it's also about being upfront. And so a lot of my writing is personal, draws on my personal experiences, is upfront about my connections with the you know people that I'm interviewing and that sort of thing. And I just think that that's the sort of honesty that audiences today are also yearning for, right? There's a real distrust and mistrust in the media. And some of that, you know, there are many, many reasons for that. But I think some of that is also because people realize that like old white guys who don't have anything in common with the stories that they're writing about are not like inherently more objective than other types of people. Do you, as you're pitching these kind of pieces and, you know, not to like name names of publications or anything, but do you, are there, are there some topics that some types of media organizations are less likely to want to cover? Do you get pushback sometimes? Like what, what does that process look like? Yeah. So, um, (laughs) yes, there, there definitely are certain editors and certain publications that I think are more open to this kind of newer type of journalism that I'm describing. And I think also, you know, I've been writing about COVID patient issues and long COVID really since 
I won't say since it emerged because, uh, you know, long COVID can be defined in a, in a lot of different ways. And we know that there were cases of COVID in the United States before we were tracking them. But I've been writing about these issues since uh, March and April of 2020. So for, for quite a while at this point. And I have seen a, a real shift in the way that these pitches have kind of been responded to. So initially, there was, of course, skepticism, right? Because at the very beginning, there was disbelief that um, long COVID even existed in the first place. But then there was kind of this golden age <laughs> in 2020 and 2021, where I think editors were starting to recognize that this was an issue. And they wanted as much information as possible. They wanted to publish, you know, as much information as possible. You know, not every editor, and of course, there still was a dearth of information on long COVID um, and COVID patient issues, but they wanted that kind of on-the-ground reporting. And at the time, a lot of that quote-unquote on-the-ground reporting was happening in support groups, right? In on Twitter, in these online communities. And those were the communities that I was in because I started one of them and I had been in them from kind of day one. And so I was talking to all of these people and I was able to provide those perspectives and share those stories. But after um, the vaccine came out, and especially after, I would say, after that first Omicron wave, when we started getting a lot of this messaging that this is no longer, you know, a collective public health issue, it's really a public health issue that has to be dealt with as individuals. And, you know, if you are at higher risk or if you have reason to be concerned about long COVID, well, that's your individual problem that you have to solve on your own. After that governmental messaging started to be pushed more and more. And I think also, honestly, after the Biden administration took over, right, and it was no longer clear that it was just like, oh, it's, you know, evil Trump, and this is all because of the Republicans and this one terrible president, there started to be, I think, just in the media in general, a little bit more pushback to the idea of publishing stories that could be seen as alarming people about the threats of COVID. And there was a great article on this actually recently by Kendra Pierre-Lewis that I really recommend to anyone interested in this that was published in April uh, called Three Years Later, COVID-19 is Still a Health Threat. Journalism Needs to Reflect That. This is in Neiman Reports basically talking about this kind of shift that happened in media coverage, um, you know, a, a potentially ableist shift where um, the concern became more about protecting the public from, you know, quote unquote, mass hysteria or um, these fears of uh, the potential harms of COVID. Well, what if the, what if it's not actually that harmful? What if long COVID actually doesn't affect that many people as opposed to the concern? What if it does? Right. What if it affects more people than we think it does? What if it's more severe than we think it is? What if it's a degenerative disease? Right. Right. And so I've noticed that there's been a little more skepticism from some editors. Um, I am also hearing some editors say, well, what is new about this? Right. We already know long COVID exists, but what's the new angle? What's the new thing? And unfortunately, what's coming in and filling that gap of what is new is skepticism. We've seen way more articles that are skeptical of the existence of long COVID to begin with being published in the past six months than in those first two years. And that's because a lot of these editors are seeing that as a new angle or a new perspective when it's actually the oldest angle in the book, right? Saying it's all in your head, ladies, is like <laughs> what, how it all started and why we're in this place in the first place. So I think I may have gotten slightly off the tangent there, but hopefully that answered your question. Definitely. I'd like to talk a little bit about body politic because that was an organization that predated the COVID crisis. And I think became quite well known because of the patient group that was sort of housed under it. But I was wondering how you knew that body politic would be like the right place to house 
a, a group like the the long COVID uh, group under it, and and like also how you kind of like fit that into the larger mandate of the organization, like how you organized it around body politics, other work and priorities, and things like that. Yeah. So body politic today is pretty different than what it was pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic, I started body politic as a queer feminist um, wellness collective and event series. So I started body politic after after the Trump inauguration. I was dealing with a lot of mental health issues. And I'm not going to say that they were all because of that, um, but it didn't help. And I felt very much uh I had I had graduated from college in 2016. I was working a, a kind of I'll say an editorial nine to five job. And I was feeling pretty unfulfilled. And then when that happened, when he was elected and the inauguration happened, I realized that it was the first time in four years that something pretty dramatic politically had happened. And I didn't feel like I had a clear space or a clear community to go to and kind of mobilize with. Because in college, it would have been like, okay, yeah, let's all, you know, let's, we're going to make a zine, <laughs> you know, like sometimes it would be that, right? Or we're going to, we're going to have a march, right? Or we're going to, we're going to all gather in the women's center and, you know, there's going to be this conversation or, or something like that. And so I wanted to just create some sort of space that could do that at the same time. I was relying on a lot of kind of quote unquote wellness offerings to just manage my own mental health and wellness. But I was very aware that wellness culture, again, this was 2017 to 2018, wellness culture at that time was exceptionally white, exceptionally kind of elite and inaccessible. And, um, you know, I, I'm i white, I'm thin, I pass as a cisgender person a lot of the time. Um, and I was entering spaces that I just knew a lot of my friends really couldn't enter and feel comfortable in. Um, and I wasn't feeling comfortable in a lot of these spaces as well. They were kind of infused with like, you know, diet culture and all sorts of things like that. So that was um, the the kind of idea behind the initial uh, vision for body politic. And we ran events in New York City and we had a blog called Body Type where we we wrote about all things kind of related to health and wellness and social justice. When the pandemic started, we thought we might have a role in, you know, what was going on. But honestly, things happened too quickly in terms of my own personal infection for us to even really figure out what that role would be. So my friend Sabrina, who had been working with me on Body Politic and I, we were thinking about like, okay, maybe we could do some kind of, uh, I, I don't even think we were using the word support group, like affinity group, like online affinity group for immunocompromised people or Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders who were already, I mean, Asian hate was really huge even at that time, right? This was, you know, the end of February, beginning of March uh, 2020. But then Sabrina and I both got sick with COVID on March 10th and March 13th. So we didn't have much time to kind of put anything in place. I think, though, what we did have was we already had a little bit of an operating structure. We had a following on social media. You know, it's, it wasn't as big as it is now, but we had a following on social media. And we had a shared value system for approaching topics related to health and wellness. We knew that we didn't want to be overly prescriptive, for example. We knew that we wanted to try and fight fat phobia and racism and ableism. So that was really, really helpful for setting up what ultimately became kind of, you know, a crisis response, this COVID-19 support group that we started um, in March of 2020, because we didn't have to go through all those questions of like, Hmm, well, what do you think we should do when somebody says that they have the diet that's going to cure everyone of COVID? Like we knew that we, that's not the type of thing we wanted posted in the group, right? So 
to answer your question, that's kind of why we set it up through body politic. But body politic evolved tremendously uh, in in the years since because the support group became the main thing we were doing um, after we both got sick. And then the leadership and the, the group of people involved in running body politic changed really significantly because the original group of people who had been involved kind of dispersed. Some of those people got sick as well. Some of those people stayed on. Some of those people left New York City or, you know, had to weren't able to continue kind of volunteering their time to this collective thing that we'd all been doing because, you know, things got very real and a lot of people had intense financial issues as a result of the pandemic, myself included. And so it started, we started to pull in leaders from this support group community. So it started to really be run. The new leadership structure was primarily made up of other COVID patients and eventually long COVID patients and uh, people with related chronic illnesses who were involved in helping us run this support group. And so then Body Politic itself as an organization also transformed into really being more of a grassroots advocacy organization for people with uh, complex chronic illnesses and post-infectious chronic illnesses and, you know, ultimately long COVID and advocating on behalf of people with long COVID. And that's what it still does today. And I am no longer the president of that organization. Again, I have less of that kind of direct advocacy experience. The person who runs it now is Angela Vasquez, who has worked as a professional activist for years. um, And she does an excellent job um, with that sort of, you know, meeting with the White House and meeting with the, you know, World Health Organization and and sharing insights from the group and pushing on policy issues and that sort of thing. But that's kind of the trajectory of of how things happened. You wrote a piece in Wired a couple of months ago about, I think it's called something like, it's okay to not meet in real life or something, but, you know, about the need for really everyone for all organizations to to continue to have a, a presence that is not necessarily in person to make it possible for people who have health challenges and other reasons that they can't to get together in in person. Can you talk a little bit about the the need for that that everyone who's thinking about activism and advocacy should keep in mind, you know, for a while there in mid to late 2020, like everything moved online and and it suddenly opened things up to a lot of people who might not have had that before, but now a, a whole bunch of stuff has moved back to being in person only. So, you know, what what should people be thinking about with that? Yeah. So first off, I want to say that if you are someone listening to this podcast and this is not something that you've been thinking about, it's okay, right? Like we all have issues that we have not fully thought about. And then we have that moment of realization and we make the change and we course correct. And prior to the pandemic, I was running in-person events and I was, you know, trying to live stream things here or there when, when, you know, I was thinking about it or when possible, but I don't think I was doing a very good job with this before the pandemic. And if I could go back in time and change the way that things I was, you know, doing back then, I would as well. So I just want to acknowledge that because I think sometimes when we talk about these things, people feel like, shamed about how how they've been doing things thus far and that prevents them from making a change. Um, So I just want to acknowledge that, you know, it's right. Things happen. We learn and we can still change. So yeah, it's an equity issue. Having events only in person, um, especially, you know, if you're running uh, a social justice oriented organization or you're doing advocacy work, you know, or you consider yourself to be someone who's kind of working on the left, right, or you're interested in equity, um, you are shutting out people by keeping your events only in person. 
And that's because, you know, they're disabled and chronically ill individuals who prior to the pandemic were not able to engage in in-person events, right? Um, one of the people who I spoke to in that article is someone who's severely immunocompromised and even before the pandemic often had to, you know, forego in-person activities for this reason. But also the pandemic has really raised the stakes for a lot of us. I went to my first in-person conference, I think, uh, of this entire pandemic, maybe last a couple weeks ago. And I went because they were requiring masks. And I only went to my session. But the whole experience was uh, incredibly draining for me, right? I have an energy limiting disease. So this meant that I had to basically I wasn't doing anything afterward for like two weeks. I, I it meant that I wasn't making as much money afterward, because I'm I'm a gig worker, right? I'm a freelancer and a contractor. So that's a huge sacrifice. And I was still risking exposure by going to this conference, right? I had to fly on a plane where masks are no longer mandated. So even though I was wearing mine, I'm still risking exposure. I'm at this giant hotel where, you know, not everyone has to wear a mask, um, even, even though the people at my specific conference session did. And I have a very mild case of long COVID compared to a lot of people. So when we don't make the effort to, you know, invite speakers who can participate from home or live stream these events, we're just shutting out a, a, a rather, at this point, a growing population, right? And especially, I think what really gets me is when, you know, the events are events that are around health equity issues or around issues related to COVID, right? I mean, I actually just saw that there is a chronic illness advocacy organization that's doing an in-person conference and not providing live streams, which is just utterly ridiculous, right? There was a healthcare journalist conference that happened earlier this year that didn't provide virtual options and didn't confirm their COVID mitigation efforts until the very last minute, and so I couldn't attend. That means they're not going to have perspectives from healthcare journalists who cover healthcare who are, you know, more vulnerable to COVID. Arguably, those are some of the most important perspectives to be hearing from in 2022, 2023. So it's absolutely um, an issue that, you know, anyone who cares about equity and justice should be thinking about right now. And I want to shout out Long COVID Justice is an organization run by J.D. Davids, who was active in ACT UP and as a person living with long COVID and other complex chronic illnesses, he and his group have developed um, a set of recommendations for people who do choose to have uh, conferences or events in person. You can check it out at their website and their Instagram and also best practices for, for you know, virtual engagement and kind of sharing that stuff outside of in-person uh, events. We will definitely include all of that in the show notes so that people can check that out because I think that's a great resource. And I think often people don't know where to start when they have to start thinking about making COVID mitigations for their own events. So that is tremendously helpful. I have a broader question for you, which is um, there are a lot of ways to take action, as I'm sure you know, as someone who grew up with activist role models in your life. How did you decide that media would be a, a route, the route that you would pursue. Are there things that you've done that you felt like were outside of your comfort zone in, in sort of activist or advocacy spaces? And how did you kind of land on the approach that you now take? That's a great question. Um, this is something I've thought a lot about. And I think for me, it's come down to trying to find a sweet spot between my skill set and kind of my set of privileges to figure out what makes the most sense for me. So I I was trained as a journalist, right? That's kind of what I went to school for. I mean, Yale doesn't literally have a journalism major, but they have a journalism certificate. And that's, you know, what I focused on there. And that's what I was focusing on in my years uh, after college. And so 
that's what I feel I'm good at, right? I, I think I'm I'm a good communicator. I think I'm I'm good at kind of navigating the world of pitching to editors and working with editors and working on those sort of editorial and communications projects. You know, there are other things like writing policy reports. I could do it, but it might take me longer than somebody else who has that background, right? I could probably put together a research study or, you know, help and add comments. And listen, I have done some of this stuff in the past three years. But again, I might not be as quick at it or as good at it as somebody who has more of the background. But then the other thing I've been trying to think about is my kind of set of of privileges, both in terms of um, what do I have access to that other people might not? And how can I use that access and that, you know, quote unquote, megaphone in, in a good way, right? So again, I... I went to a school where I gained connections to people who went on to work at big media publications. That means that I might have an easier time placing an op-ed or an article in one of these publications than someone else does, right? And so how can I use that to kind of amplify the voices of people who may not have that access? Well, probably through pitching reported articles, right? So I write a, I've written a lot of op-eds, but most of the op-eds that I write still include a lot of other voices other than my own. But then I'm also thinking about it in terms of like who I am and where I should be in various movements. So at the beginning of the pandemic, um, I got COVID early on, right? I wrote about my experience and I got a lot of media attention and I was doing a lot of media in that first kind of six months to a year um, because everyone was coming to me and asking me about my story. But after about a year, and I would say, you know, probably earlier than that, I started to feel uncomfortable with the idea that I had become, in some people's minds, the face of long COVID. I didn't think it was really a great thing that the quote unquote face of long COVID would be someone who's white and economically privileged and has a milder case. If people were really going to understand what this illness looks like and how it can manifest and how it can impact people's lives, they needed to be hearing from a diverse group of people and ideally people who are most impacted by this illness. And so that was also kind of right a moment of reckoning and realizing, yeah, so my place may not be being the spokesperson, right, uh, of telling my own story, but perhaps instead being, again, more of that communicator, helping an organization write a press release or trying to write an article that's going to share what another organization is doing. Or, you know, when I do, I, I now I'm very clear with people about what sort of media appearances I do and don't do, you know, when I'm when I'm approached by bigger outlets. I talk, I'll talk about my work as a journalist. I'll share tips for other journalists on how to report on long COVID. And I can share stories that I have, you know, already kind of put out there, right? To to again amplify these other people's experiences. Um, and I'm also happy to talk about how I set up this support group because that is a story that is one that really only I can tell. But I also always recommend other patients and advocates that I'm working with because there are usually other people who are going to do a better job telling the story of what it's like to have long COVID than me. So those are the things I kind of juggle. And I would not say that I've done a perfect job. And I also would not say that I I'm not still figuring it out, but that's what I'm always trying to think about in terms of figuring out where my time would be best spent. Can you talk a little bit about your book and how this project came together and help people know how they can order a copy too? Yeah, the Long COVID Survival Guide came out in November 2022, but I think it is uh, honestly a project that is building on you know years of of wisdom, not just the wisdom gained over the course of the pandemic, but also the wisdom of uh, people who have been living with chronic illnesses and post-infectious illnesses for far longer. So we have contributors with long COVID. We also have contributors who are bringing experiences of living with ME-CFS. 
myalgic encephalomyelitis, uh, which is a related illness to long COVID that predated the pandemic, but didn't get much attention, perhaps in part because it predominantly impacted women. We also have uh, folks who have been involved in HIV AIDS advocacy who have written chapters in the book. Um, But the book is primarily written by people with lived experience because we believe that those are the true experts on long COVID. Um, I mean, I think I believe that people with lived experience really are the true experts on many things, but especially for an illness that is, you know, relatively new or at least new in this version. Those of us who have it, you know, we we have been intimately <laughs> aware of it for longer than kind of anyone else. People with long COVID came up with a name for the disease, um, where the reason that there is clinical guidance that there's an ICD code. And so we wanted kind of all of that uh, expertise to be in the book. The book is written by 20 different people because it also felt important that the kind of guide to navigating long COVID not just come from one individual. We all have, you know, long COVID is an umbrella term, so it includes different symptom clusters. Um, That being said, there are, of course, a lot of very common experiences and common symptoms but who you are and you know what you're navigating in life has a lot to do with how you navigate this disease. And so we wanted there to, of course, be chapters on navigating medical racism and medical sexism and navigating financial issues and employment issues, as well as chapters on how to navigate healthcare systems in general. And you know that chapter is written by patients and people with medical degrees. Um, so we just felt like bringing in a lot of different perspectives was the best way to do that. Um, and then lastly, I'll say that We have thought about this book as a support group in book form. Um, And we're thinking about it that way, both because we know that, you know, things on the internet are not permanent, right? And um, we can't guarantee that uh, this archive of information that we've all been building in our different groups and our different forums is going to remain forever. But also because we know that online support groups aren't available or equally appealing to everyone. And so I think especially now, you know, when I first got sick, there was a real lack of information on long COVID, but right now there's almost too much information. If you're just developing the disease and you start Googling, it's like a lot of conflicting information. So we want this book to kind of be that that best friend when you're, you know, having your moment where you're feeling alone and like no one knows what's going on with you. But we also want it to be that guide through the noise to help you figure out, you know, kind of what to trust what to, you know, maybe pay less attention to. um, Because again, there is a lot out there right now. And I think it can be really difficult, even for me sometimes. And I've been tracking this from the from the beginning. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been really both interesting, and I think also really informative and helpful to people who are trying to kind of figure out how to use their skills in a way that is productive and helpful to whatever movement they're uh, interested in or invested in. Can you tell the people how they can find you on the internet? And also, um, don't forget to tell them how they can order your book. Ah, yes. Okay, so the book is available, should be available from all major booksellers, anywhere they sell books. Um, So Barnes & Noble, Amazon, you know, all those big places, but also um, hopefully your local bookstore. And, you know, if they don't have it, tell them to order it. Um, I'm also going to put in a plug here for two other things, which is ask your local library to stock the book if they don't have it. And I also want to mention, and I will share the link for this, that we have a long COVID book exchange going um, for people who want to own a copy of the book but can't afford to buy one. So we have a little Google form where you can sign up to either gift a copy of the book to somebody else who wants one but can't afford to buy one, or you can sign up to receive a gifted copy if you want to own a copy but can't afford to buy one right now. So 
that's something that we have a very small team working on. Um, so if you're interested in that, uh, we'll share the link for the Google form. You can sign up. It may take you know a couple of weeks to hear from us, but we will connect you to someone. Um, and then yeah, I am. I'm on. I'm on Twitter <laughs> for now. No idea if that will still be true when this airs, but right now I'm on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok. Um, my handle is the same on all three at fee, F-I underscore Lowenstein. And you can also check out my website, FionaLowenstein.com, where I uh, hopefully have updated it with my recent articles and that sort of thing. And we just had a big piece come out in the nation. It's called The Long COVID Revolution, and it is currently accessible to all non-subscribers. So that gives a good recap of where the movement's at right now, if folks are curious. Was there anything else you wanted to make sure we talk about? I think the only last thing I'll say is that maybe maybe something I left out is that the other reason that I am trying to focus on communications is something that was that I gleaned from like writing this article and some of the work that I've done recently, which is that I'm learning more and more that when we focus, especially in health advocacy, only on research and development, we run the risk of developing therapeutics that are not accessible to everyone. And so I'm not necessarily saying that I'm the person, the best person to like bridge every communication gap with every community, but I'm interested in communications because I feel like that is an area that often doesn't get equal investment and is clearly so important. And we've also screwed it up so badly during this pandemic. I think pandemic preparedness is equally about investing in public health communications and you know, journalists who can convey what's going on and community health workers who can share information on whatever therapeutics get developed as it is uh, investing in, you know, the development of therapeutics and making sure that we have the sort of public health departments that can develop vaccines quickly. So that's my, that's my, the only other thing I'd mention. I'm so glad you mentioned that. That's a, that's a, something we talk about a lot in the 9-11 health community as well. And it has such a huge impact on what kind of data even gets collected in the first place so that we so that you know we even know like where to direct our communications and our efforts so i'm so glad that you mentioned that but thanks so much for joining us this has been really fantastic thank you so much for having me this is this was great thanks for listening to what can i do you can find show notes and credits for this episode at what can i do podcast.com To the best of our knowledge, all audio used by What Can I Do is in the public domain or used with permission. Original artwork is by Matthew Wefflin and used with express permission. You can find us on Twitter at WhatCanIDoPod. To contact us with questions or guest suggestions, please email hello at WhatCanIDoPodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends.